0: is offered through Jim Solnier and Associates LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the Retirement and IRA show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University Finance Instructor and Certified Financial Planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, borrowing case, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H E L P S.com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition. For this week, we've got uh, what I believe is going to be the last part of this uh, multi part series where we're talking a bit about. The funding of the minimum dignity floor. And we had kind of shared with you a reminder of what's, what's part of the expense group we call the minimum dignity floor. And then also had talked about our, you know, our preferred approach to funding said minimum dignity floor expenses. And the challenge of doing so, one of the biggest challenges is uh, dealing with inflation over time. Because in our opinion, there's a couple of categories in the minimum dignity floor set of expenses that have been uh in the recent history inflating faster than what most people would consider average inflation and last show I'm not going to rehash the whole thing we talked about how we kind of deal with that uh, uh situation via uh our own projections for higher than average inflation and then also a recommendation that one uh, create some buffers or reserves just in case higher inflation Happens and also monitor the situation over time. Those that's kind of the summary of where we got last time. But in this show, we wanted to kind of focus on maybe alter, alternate methods of dealing with uh, funding of the minimum dignity floor, particularly those that might be specifically targeting inflationary pressures. What approaches might be uh, appropriate or worth considering uh, when you're deciding what you might want to do in that area? Uh, So I know Jim's gotten several emails as uh, you know, kind of follow-on questions that related to what we've been talking about the last couple EDU shows. Before I bring him in to chat, I want to let everybody know off the top here that uh, uh, this show is going to air on uh, uh, November 22nd of 2023, the day before Thanksgiving. The Q and A show we would normally release on the 25th of November 2023 uh, will not be happening. So we're going to take Thanksgiving day and the day off after that off, which is normally when we would record the Q and a show. So just a heads up that uh, no fresh Q and a show this particular week. Uh, we'll be back with you next week with uh, new edu and Q and a shows. So I'll uh, invite Jim in now, which is my code words to him to unmute his microphone and uh he'll uh take us on a path uh hopefully i described where we're headed on the path appropriately and share with us the emails that he's gotten on the topic
3: well where we start the podcast is correct where it ends i have no idea because <laughs> <laughs> i have no idea what you and i are going to really end up talking about i have a, a general idea of the facts i want to cover but you know how we get, and we may go down some rabbit holes and some discussions, and before you know it, we run out of time, and uh, we do it on another podcast. But our intention is to wrap it up uh, this week, and then next week, I want to do a show, uh, an EDU show on how to choose a financial advisor. I'll relay a story that happened to me when I was in Ohio, kind of a funny story, and I told I never told you yet about it, Chris, either. And I will uh, I told the people involved that I would feature this on a podcast and uh, let them know when it airs because they had no idea I was even a podcast host. Um, So anyways, that's my intent for the next podcast, assuming EDU show, assuming we get through this one today, as, as we hope. And then I want to close out the month of December back to our dialogue series, Chris, because we had said that we wanted to do quarterly dialogue series. And uh, that's the series where you kind of write in and share with us what you're doing to help fund your retirement. Are you using our fund number approach? Are you using a safe withdrawal rate? Are you using a, a guardrail? Are you using the floor approach? What are you doing or your own personal approach? And we got a lot of good feedback on that, so I thought we would dedicate uh, a couple of EDU shows in December, two or three of them, uh, to uh, the dialogue. In a perfect world, folks, and this is probably news to Chris, because it just jumped into my head a couple of weeks ago (laughs) as I was plotting this all out. It would be great, Chris, for the dialogue series at least, if we could go back to that service we had. I don't even know what it was called. And people could call in live. Remember when we would record the QA show at a certain time every week? And people could call in. Maybe for the dialogue show, if Chris and I could actually commit our schedules, that's going to be the hard part, folks, to recording three dialogue shows in a row, so three weeks at the same day at the same time, or close to the same time, you guys could I I know log into something. Hear it live as we're recording and actually call in. Um, do you know if we could still do that, Chris?
2: Um, probably <laughs> some hesitancy. Yeah, there, well, Pope. we've changed the technology we use for communications in the office since the days when we did that, so the old method I used couldn't be used again. But oh. i that doesn't mean we can't do it, I'll just have to. Uh, I'll check into it is all I can commit to <laughs> at this point, live on the show when you drop these on me.
3: <laughs> you must love when I do this. But um, that's my hope, folks, next next year, maybe even for the fourth uh, first quarter dialogue series, which will play sometime uh, in March. So it gives Chris uh, a little bit of time to maybe figure it out. We'll keep you posted if we can pull that off. And uh, if Chris can set it up, if anyone can do it, it'll be Chris. And if we can do it, I just think that'll add a a new new dimension to the dialogue series where people could call in live and and chat with us live about what they're doing and and go from there. Okay, so as for today, uh, we kind of want to wrap up, hopefully, this series, which began in in my eyes. And Chris and I were chatting just before uh, he hit the record button and I was telling him what I wanted to cover And there might be a little bit of confusion of what I intended to do with this whole series. This whole series was always, in my eyes, a way of explaining how we as a firm address the risk of inflation as it pertains to minimum dignity floor expenses. We address inflation for other expenses differently, and we'll have to do a podcast series on those in the future as well. And I can get into a little bit more of how we address uh, the inflation of fund spending, of how we address the inflation of aging, how we address uh, inflation. And is inflation even an issue on guaranteed inheritance? And that's a, a unique question. And I'll explain on a future podcast what I mean. So we can address those other elements that we do in our practice but what I wanted to do on this because to me it's the most important was how do we as a firm address the risk of inflation on minimum dignity floor so the first show was really a recap of what the minimum dignity floor is the second show last week was my attempt at trying to explain to you how we address it and also pointing out to you repeatedly that inflation is an unknown risk. It it it's really going to come down to the luck of the draw for some people. Inflation won't be a massive issue for them at all. Inflation might be benign over the course of their retirement, especially if sadly they live a shorter than average retirement period.
2: As, I was going people to say you're like, kind of giving people the glass half full of having a short <laughs> retirement period. <laughs>
3: But someone might have retired later in life and not have a long retirement or someone sadly passes away. And we see that a lot. But the past decade, excluding 2022 and 2023, the decade prior to that, inflation was benign, negative many years, very low in most years. And that was a fairly good time from inflationary pressures. But of course, we could go back to when I was just a teenager in the 70s and a a young or old teenager, young adult in the early 80s, when inflation was a massive issue. So I can't say what your inflation is going to be. I can't say what mine's going to be. I can't say what Chris's is going to be. Nobody knows. It's going to depend on how long you live in retirement, and when you retire. Now, it may not have the sequence of return risk that investing has, because investing changes literally daily. Inflation doesn't change daily. It's more of a slower progression, as everybody knows. But there is sequence risk of inflation. In fact, some Uh, talking heads in our industry are starting to acknowledge that. And I'm reading articles in, in my press. I don't know what they have in the consumer press, but I know in the financial planning press that I follow, there are research reports and articles coming out addressing the sequence of inflation risk. And if your clients are going to retire in low inflation early, high inflation later, or high inflation early, lower later, On all these different scenarios in between. And should Monte Carlo be expanded? I think it's more of a shout out to the financial planning software industry. Should they start building in variability, extreme variability in inflation to be able to see what that would cause? So there's all these different things being bantered around by inflation because people are acknowledging it is a risk. And it's a risk that is incredibly difficult to truly, totally remove. Even Social Security, which one would argue is inflation adjusted and guaranteed by the U.S. government, which is still being deemed as one of the safest investments out there, is their CPI measure, which they increase Social Security by, truly reflective of the inflationary pressures of a retiree. I don't think so at all, especially when looking at minimum dignity flora, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses. Those can go up quite high. And perhaps tying your retirement's success into just CPI inflation adjusted measures like a tips ladder would do, may not truly be giving you the full protection that it appears it is giving you because is CPI headline inflation truly what your personal inflation is. These are all the issues that people have to look at. It's one reason we use very specific individualized rates of inflation for each expense. We do a cash flow-based analysis. We don't do a goals-based analysis. We're in a goals-based analysis in our industry. People might look at retirement as one goal, or they might look at certain elements of retirement. My travel goal, My they don't call it minimum dignity floor. They usually call it uh, needed expenses, required expenses, whatever they call it. They create those as little goals, and each goal will get its own inflation rate. But that still doesn't get as, as accurate as a cash flow based where each cash flow item gets its own inflation rate. When we do that, then you can get what is called a weighted inflation rate. I spend 8% on food. I spend 14% on healthcare, 6% on housing, whatever the, the breakdown may be. And each of those expenses have their own inflationary rate unique to them. And then it gets weighted and you come up with your own personal rate of inflation. That may differ greatly from CPI headline inflation. And a tip is only being increased by CPI headline inflation. And if you're tasking a tip ladder with keeping pace with inflation, it may keep pace with headline inflation, but it may not keep pace with the spending that that ladder is being assigned to. So these are some of the issues we run into and you will run into as you start putting your approach to dealing with inflation together. And since we are going to be doing a dialogue series Why don't you share with us? And again, you got to put in the subject line dialogue. And this time, if you could put inflation dialogue or dialogue inflation, one or the other, I don't care. But if it's in the subject line, I'll drag it. I have my little folders now, Chris. I'm I'm getting there. I'll drag it into the dialogue folder. And then maybe we'll address this on one of our dialogue shows. What some of our listeners, Chris, are doing to keep pace with inflation as they project their retirement. Before I dive deeper into things, anything you want to add? Because um, yours truly has been talking for about five minutes. I don't want to hog the mic. Um,
2: No, I think you're getting people up to speed for where we're going today. So I'm, okay. I'm along for the ride well, so far.
3: At, let's look at a couple of emails then we got. Chris? And kind of answer a couple of questions. <clears throat> this one came into us this week. I'm going to hand this one to you because you do the programming in our software, and maybe you can address this outright, or maybe you and I can opine a little bit on it. But it begins, Dan, Jim, and Chris. I'm a longtime listener. Oh, it's good. little hint, folks. So we don't usually do a hint on an edu show. This one is probably going to piss some people off. This is his opinion. Not ours, and we don't vet this. Longtime listener from the northernmost state, where the most populated city in that state has an unofficial slogan that reads, A desire to keep the city weird. That's his quote, folks. I did not prove that that's what this city's. Logo is or or, or um, slogan. slogan slogan is. But when I read it, Chris, one city popped into my head, and it—I believe it's the city. He told me the state he lives in, not the city. I—I mm-hmm. I guessed it based on the city. One city popped into my head, and it turned out to be in that state.
2: Mm-hmm. Any idea? I'm going to say Oregon.
3: Yep. And what city you it's popped po- into your it's head?
2: Portland, and they're not shy about. Keeping it weird, kind of like Austin, Texas does the same thing, but that the northernmost <laughs> state with one of these cities in it. So, Austin might be the southernmost state, although I take you, it back. I think Key West, Florida would be the most, the southernmost that uh, relishes their weirdness.
3: Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. He said, P.S. people in Austin or Louisville, Kentucky. May also be making this claim. That's why I specified my state is the northernmost. So I didn't know Louisville also strived to be Mm, weird. Me either. Um, I knew Key West did, and Oregon. uh, I just thought uh, Portland, as Mm -hmm. you know, I I agree. It just it's their, their you know their shtick, their marketing gimmick. We're Mm. we're weird, and we're proud of it. Okay. So, anyways, his question is this, Chris. In regards to your application for an inflation adjustment on medical and dental expenses, I'm sure you know as we age, our medical and dental needs will certainly increase. The cost of these uh, expenses will also be increasing. I imagine any inflation adjustment you make will pale in comparison to the potential increase in healthcare needs just healthcare needs just due to our declining health how do you adjust and project for the increased health expenses and the increased inflation thanks george mm-hmm. from oregon mm-hmm.
2: That's an interesting question because it opens up, um, lets me talk a little bit about where we get our inflation adjustments or inflation assumptions for the healthcare category. Um, we use estimates for healthcare expenses that are actuarially based. And the reason I, I, can make that claim is not that we have actuaries on staff by any means, but the data resource that we utilize to estimate the health care expenses for retirees is using actuarially-based um, estimates. Actuarially means statistically-based uh, using certain inputs like age, gender, geographic location, um, your health, your current health status. Those are all inputs that if you were at an insurance company trying to price out insurance policies appropriately, you'd use actuarial sciences to determine what those policy premiums should be uh, because the actuaries would be able to give you an estimate of how much the healthcare is going to cost for for your group of individuals. Now, that being said, you know, so the data source we're using um is got essentially baked in both of those things that you're talking about. The, the increased usage of healthcare as one ages, as well as the cost of those healthcare expenses going up. Now, that being said, the estimates that we're using, even though they're actuarially based, that doesn't mean that your specific healthcare costs 15 years from now couldn't be quite different. And this would be, and, and what I mean by that is, When we're making our best statistical estimate today of what your healthcare might be 10 years from now, your gender, your age, where you are geographically, how your current health condition is. Do you have heart problems now? Do you have diabetes now? Do you have all these other things? All that could change over the coming 10 years and you might end up being very different than what the prediction was. So even though we feel pretty good about the estimating approach that we use utilizing this data resource, that, uh, it's a third party. We don't, uh, you know, this isn't data that we're out there manually harvesting ourselves, but there's, uh, several companies out there. We use one of them that supplies research data on healthcare expenses to insurance companies and others who are willing to pay for the data. And the other group that one of the other groups they offer this to are financial advisors who can, through a subscription, pay to have access to these, uh, estimates. And it gives us, uh, I guess, something to start with, but we have to admit something this listener, this, this author, of this email is bringing up that I'm, I'm you know, glad it gives us the opportunity to chat about it. If you have one-off, if you end up having a tremendous deterioration, for instance, in your, in your, uh, in your mouth, in your dental needs as you age, The dental cost estimates that we are using in our original projection, maybe when you were 65 years old, might not capture massive amounts of reconstruction or implants or things like that. If your if your mouth really deteriorates uh, that you might face in your 70s or 80s later on in life, that doesn't mean we aren't concerned about it or we don't plan for it. This is where what we call a buffer reserve comes in for these gee our estimates were this let's do our best to fund towards those estimates but in case we're wrong about certain elements let's have a reserve cushion that we can call upon to do this and I would and maybe you know Jim can share his thoughts on this too but this is a one of the one of many reasons why we encourage people to have, among all the other protections you might put in place, secure income at certain levels, setting aside money for the delay period, all these things that we talk about constantly, we need a cushion in there just in case some of the key inputs turn out to be wrong. And this would be one case. This would be one area where I think having some extra cushion in there for unanticipatedly high health care and I called on dental cause that's the one I hear about more often than not. People get really surprised when they need a whole series of implants or whatever, and they're not willing to make a vacation to Mexico, which is where I would go personally for my dental care. Uh, just cause I've seen, uh, people have good luck doing that and they get a vacation out of it, but, uh, take that for what, it, for, for what it's worth. Um, And, uh, but, but dental seems to come up a lot where people are suddenly surprised with some really high dental costs. Uh, that's where that cushion comes in. So, um, hopefully that was helpful or insightful about how we approach it and and where that buffer might come in to help out if you had some, you know, uh, surprise expenses show up.
3: I I know you didn't mention the software we use Mm -hmm. by name, or at least if you did, I didn't pick up on it. Do you know off the top of your head, I don't think they do. They don't have a retail version, do they, that people can, you know, pay. I haven't a looked fee for a to. while, but
2: I'll look up right, I'll look it up right now and see if they do. If they do, then I'll name it.
3: Yeah, I don't think they do, folks, and that's why we're not naming it. But um if they do, you can try it. Again, it's something that we use. There's no perfect measure to this. The big takeaway, retirement planning. I don't know how many times I have to say this is not gonna be a set it and forget it, a one and done. You're gonna need to constantly be monitoring your plan. Now, I don't mean constantly to the point where you're forgoing your go-go years and having fun because you're sitting home, you got CNBC on one, one screen, you got some bond market on the other screen and you're sitting there panicking every day. No, not at all. But I am saying every year or two, update the numbers. Monitor things. Two years later, you have the actual returns you got for the previous two years, not the projected returns. You have the actual inflation that you experienced on your minimum dignity floor, not the projected ones. Update it all. You have more information on your health and your needs. Are things changing? Update it all. Constantly monitor it. Now, in our approach, the fun number approach to retirement planning, as you mine, for lack of a better term, your your portfolio, as you dig into your portfolio and remove everything that you're going to spend your money on to leave the fun money left, as you do that, one of the elements you have to address is the buffer or reserve, and it's specifically designed for this particular case, as as others would be. The unknown, inflation might be benign and never an issue beyond any projection you made, or inflation might be through the roof, or your mouth may fall apart, as Chris said, and you need tens of thousands of dollars of dentistry. I don't know if I would go to Mexico for it, but I do know many people do. I may choose a dentist here in the States, but keep in mind, vision, hearing, and dental is not covered by Medicare, at least right now. And don't fall prey to these Medicare Advantage commercials that are out there promising you everything. They're going to drive you around. They're going to buy you food. They're going to give you a dental and vision and health uh, dental vision And hearing benefit, and they're going to pay for gym membership, all this. And they're going to give you a loaf of sliced bread on top of that. Don't fall for those gimmicks. Those three elements are not going to be fully covered by Medicare Advantage or traditional Medicare. You will have to pay for those. It could come from your fun money because it's got to come from somewhere. And people are saying, well, that's not fun. That's the whole idea of the buffer. And we have people, the smallest I've ever seen someone put aside as their buffer was 50,000. The highest was a million. So you can see it's wide. There's no right answer, there's no wrong answer. It's the money that's going to be put aside and not earmarked for fun. Again, so you feel comfortable spending on fun. But it's those dollars that can be used for the $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 unanticipated dental expense, which could easily be that high. It could be the, I don't want to say hearing aids anymore because my dad, again, is not a man of wealth, but he has non, I guess, prescription hearing aid now, but he got it at his local pharmacy, cost him a few hundred dollars, and it's working. And he can hear and he likes it. So I, I don't want to downplay hearing, but I think the the it's not as expensive as it used to be a decade ago. And hopefully technology will continue to increase and hearing won't be quite as expensive. Same thing with eyeglasses. Eyeglasses can still cost you thousands of dollars for a pair, but I got mine online. I don't even know who it's through, Warbly or something like that and uh warbis warbis peniscus or something where, do you have any idea where i got my glasses i can't remember warby Parker. something like that <laughs> I'm but they I only mean, cost me a couple of yeah. hundred dollars folks no, I think and they work Parker great was, yeah
2: right what'd you say I, I, I was just a little stunned by what you said before that it um It didn't sound like a person's name at all, but yeah, no, Warby Parker.
3: I think it's Warby Parker. I think I said Warby Peniscus or something. I don't know. I don't know what the hell comes out of my mouth. It's just my point is I'm not saying you should rely on advancements in technology to make these types of healthcare expenses cheap in the future. But I think they will be a lot more affordable than they were, except for dentistry. I don't think you can go online and have your teeth taken care of, at least not yet, by some robot. So that could be a major expense. But that's where the buffer comes in in and if you don't put a big buffer again i saw one as small as fifty thousand dollars i didn't tell the, that client that they were right or wrong it's what made them feel comfortable but if they go through that fifty thousand dollars and they still need thirty thousand for a set of teeth or something and they still have several hundred thousand in the fund pool they have a choice do i sacrifice some funds so i can have my teeth fixed That's a choice. The buffer, it's really just an accounting gimmick, folks. It is just to allow you to emotionally feel comfortable spending your fun number because you've subtracted out this buffer. You put it aside. You can identify it. You can see it. You can touch it. You could feel it if you cashed it in and had the money in your hand. It's something that's there, and you know I have this protection. That's why I call your buffer the offensive lineman of your retirement. That's your protection. You're the quarterback. And all the bad things, that's the defensive line. That's the inflation. That's the sequence of return risk. That's the unknown expenses. that thats They're all rushing at you. Your buffer is that offensive line that's trying to protect you, the quarterback. Love that analogy. So however big you want to make your offensive line is up to you. Does that kind of make sense, Chris? I think so.
2: But I like football.
3: And did you find out if the software we use has a consumer version?
2: I looked and it doesn't look like they have something. They do a little bit of retail, but it was more like a wellness app that kind of tried to tell you how much you might be helping yourself in the future by... Behavioral changes, so they had like a wellness app, but that's not what we use. We use uh, the data they provide on on healthcare expenses, and there didn't appear to be a retail version of that. Okay, okay. So, anyways, hopefully that
3: came through. So, what are other ways of addressing inflation? Well, one of the ways that's gaining a lot of traction right now, mostly uh, because of the prior higher inflation and now the higher interest rates, are tips. Treasury inflation, protected securities. And those are a unique type of bond that I'm sure most people listening to this podcast know because you're all Vanguard, BG, engineer, do-it-yourselfer types. You know what tips are. Not everybody knows what tips are, but you know what tips are. And someday I will share Chris. On the podcast, a funny story involving only I could come up with a, you got to be kidding me. This happened to you, Jim's story about tips. Have you ever heard my tip story years ago when they first came out?
2: I don't think I, don't think so. I ever
3: told you. No. I don't think I've ever told anybody. I'll, I'll share my tip story. At the end of this podcast, if I have time, I'll, I'll share it. If not, it'll crop up again. And you'll, when I'm dead and gone, this has to go in the unbelievable, stupid things Jim did. When you write that book. So okay. the tip story will have to go into that as well. I'll reserve a chapter. Say, okay. so yeah, a whole chapter. You might want to reserve a chapter for that. Okay. So anyways, back to, to this. So a ladder, a bond ladder is one way for generating cash flow. So we received an email, Chris, quite a while ago. And I think we should start with that before I jump in truly to tips and using them to keep pace with inflation. Mm -hmm. And this came in uh, October of 21. So two years ago, October 14th, uh, 1921, Uh, That's October 14th, 2021, 1921. God, that'd be over 100 years ago. Uh, 2021. Hi, Jim and Chris. I'm 62 and recently retired. Hopefully you're still listening, listener. And I hope the first two years of your retirement were really good. I'm a big fan of your show and a longtime listener. I would like to recommend that you cover bond ladders in an upcoming EDU show. Some questions would be, what is a bond ladder? How do you use one? And how do you create one? I appreciate everything you do. And he calls him, well, he gave his real name, but we'll call him George. George. And he is from a state that we get a lot of emails from. uh, And it's the Mitten State. So you should be able to guess what that is, Chris.
2: Uh, That's our friend, Michigan.
3: Michigan. Uh, We'll call him George from Michigan. So bond ladders, folks, they have just like a ladder. Just picture a ladder. You got rungs of a ladder. Each rung represents a year in a bond ladder. Now, it could be more than a year. You could have three years, five years. But for the most part, a typical bond ladder, each rung of the ladder is a year. And in each year, a bond matures. But there's there's two ways of constructing a bond ladder. The first way that I'll describe really isn't used much because interest rates fell so much. And that was back in the day, Chris, remember when you were supposed to live off of the Interest your fixed incomes generated. Remember, remember those days <laughs> where, long time ago when that's how you were told you were going to fund your retirement? Uh-huh. You were going to live off of the interest your investments generated. Well, anyone will know interest payments from a bond are far higher if that bond matures. 10, 15, 20 years from now, normally they're higher. Right now we're in an inverted yield curve. And I don't want to turn this this discussion into the bond market. But normally, the longer you lend out your money, because that's what you're doing when you buy a bond, you are lending money. You're going to lend money to a government, whether it's a federal or state government, you're going to lend money to a corporation. Uh, we're predominantly talking about lending money to the U.S. government. Um, I prefer that type of debt for retirees because the chance of default, put your political leanings aside, the chance of a default are slim to none in the United States. At least right now. Who knows what the future will bring? And if the U.S. government defaults on their debt, tons of defaults in the bond market are happening. So the the least of your worries is the U.S. government defaulting on its debt. Everyone will be defaulting. So back in the day when interest rates were higher, you didn't want to put all your money in a one-year bond or a two-year bond or a three-year bond. You would want to put your money in longer-term bonds. But if you put all your money in a longer-term bond, you're now exposed to a lot of interest rate risk. And the longer the term bond, the more volatility you're going to have in your principal. And if you needed to sell a bond for an unanticipated expense, you needed to get at principal. Even though you didn't want to spend your principal, there was always the chance you had to. And if you locked all your money up in a 10, 15, 20, 25, 30-year bond, and all of a sudden you needed some of your money, and if interest rates were going up, the price of your bonds went down, now you're being forced to sell at a loss, and that's not good. So even back in the day when you had no intention of spending principle, bond ladders today are different, but back in the day, you really had no intention of spending principle. You still constructed a ladder and it gave you a little bit of a safety valve. So you might buy a one-year bond and a two-year bond and a three-year bond. Or when it was done for income, you might've spread those rungs out. You might've had a one, three, six, nine, 12 year rung. So you had a You wouldn't really buy a one-year bond. You might have bought a CD for one year, but you would have bought a three-year bond and maybe a six-year bond, a nine-year bond, or five, 10, 15, 20, however you wanted to do it. And the theory was by having multiple bonds, you have some liquidity events coming due. As the bonds matured, you had a liquidity event. And if things changed, and you needed to spend from principle, the money was there. And if an emergency happened, you weren't selling a 20-year bond. You might have been selling a bond that matured in two years, not 20. And the, that bond might not have fluctuated much in principle. So you still would create this ladder, but the intent was to only live off of income. Well, that changed all through the 80s. When interest rates went from 18% on a 30 year bond in 1981 or 82, I forget what it was, all the way down to less than 1%, not on a 30 year, but less than or about 1% on a 10 year. And I don't know how low the 30 years got, but it was pretty, pretty damn low. And living off of just interest became almost impossible. Few people had enough money. But it didn't kill the theory of a bond ladder. So what it did instead was created a way to help fund a safe withdrawal rate. Mm-hmm. With a safe withdrawal rate, Chris, you establish whatever you and your advisor—if you're working with one, or if you're doing it yourself—whatever you feel is a safe withdrawal rate. And it's all over the place. Everybody knows the "quote unquote" four percent rule, but I've seen it as low as two point seven, as high as four point seven. It's all over. I have no idea because we don't do our retirement via a safe withdrawal rate. I have no idea what the industry is espousing as the universally approved safe withdrawal. Withdrawal rate right now. But a bond ladder can be structured around a safe withdrawal rate, listener and listeners in general. So let's just say you're going to use 4%, Chris, because that's what most people use. And let's say you have a million dollars. Well, you can spend $40,000 a year adjusted for inflation. Here's where tips come in because. Well, let me back up before tips. What you would then do is you would say, okay, I need $40,000 in year one, $40,000 in year two adjusted for inflation, $40,000 in year three. Now, you could back then, what you would probably do is assume, remember we got an email, folks, two weeks ago, we read she was going to include, Chris, 3% inflation adjustment on her 4% withdrawal. Do you remember that? Yeah. So this woman, if she was going to do that with traditional bonds, she would have said, and I don't have a calculator here, so Chris can help me out. But let's just say in year one, she puts forty thousand in a money market. That's the money she needs in year one. In year two, she could theoretically have purchased a one-year bond, although I would have recommended a one-year CD a little bit easier. <clears throat> that was going to mature at forty thousand plus. Uh whatever that comes to. So she would put enough money in a bond to generate that. But then you'd be saying, well, wait a minute, Jim, she's going to get interest. Exactly. So with a spreadsheet, she can sit there and figure out, okay, how much do I have to put in a bond to give me 40% plus 3% growth, but I am going to earn X percent on that bond, so I'll get that much in income out. So you can see the calculation is rather difficult, and you would do that for each year, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. Each bond is gonna have a different interest rate, gonna be generating a different amount of income that can get subtracted out of the principal you've got to put aside, and it gets very difficult. Fortunately, there's software programs that do this for you now. It's one reason bond ladders were very difficult to create in the past, but using traditional bonds and guessing what the inflation rate is kind of fell out of vogue when TIPS came out. And I believe TIPS first came out in the 1990s, Chris? Oh, is it the early 2000s? Can you just Google real quick when first TIPS And the government, I don't want to say created this specifically to help retirees, but it is a unique thing that the government wanted to do. And I think it was the 90s they came out under the Clinton administration. The first auction
2: was January of 1997.
3: And was Clinton in office then? I believe he was. So I can't remember. I think Clinton was in office in 97. I, I thought the Clinton administration came out with them. So kudos to them. So what a tip does is allows you to say this, hey, I want $40,000 a year and I want it adjusted for inflation. I'm going to do the 4% rule. I have a million dollars. I'm going to take 4%. In year two, I'm going to take 4% plus CPI. In year three, 4% plus CPI and the CPI keeps compounding. So. Tips, especially now because they've been around for so long, you can almost fill a 30-year tips ladder. You can't do it exactly. I was listening to a presentation by Alan Roth recently, who is much smarter than I ever am on bond ladders. And maybe if he's ever listening to my podcast and he wants to come on and explain bond ladders, great. But we don't create bond ladders traditionally for our clientele, but the uh, tips market, he said, You, I think there's three or four years with no maturing tip. So you can't fully fund a 30 year ladder. There'll be a couple of years where you're not gonna have a bond maturing. So you have to have it mature the year before with a little extra money to cover you for the missed year. But nonetheless, tips make this a little bit easier in the sense, if you want $40,000 a year, you can buy a tip maturing in year two for 40000 year three, year four, year five, year six, year seven. There are software programs now. Um, in the presentation I saw by Alan Roth, he uses tipsladder.com or .org. I forget, it's .something. But he uses that website to create a tips ladder, and it'll tell you the qsip of each tip that you should purchase and how much should go into each tip. Ladder, how much dollar amount to put in each tip? Because remember, each tip is going to generate a little bit of interest, not a lot. That's what tips are famous for. They don't pay much interest. Instead, the federal government will true up, for lack of a better term, every six months, the principal in your tip by whatever headline CPI inflation was. They will actually increase your tip by that amount. You don't get it until the tip matures, but you will have to pay taxes on it. It's called phantom income. You don't get that money until your tip bond matures, but you will have to pay taxes on it. So tips ladders generally work best in IRAs, where you're not going to have to worry about the phantom income being taxable to you until the tip matures. But you would simply use a website like tipsladder.com or .org or others, there's a couple of others, and lay out how much you want. My safe withdrawal rate is this much. My portfolio is this much. So I wanna begin in my example with $40,000 and I want $40,000 every year adjusted for CPI headline inflation. And I wanna know how much to put in a tip today and what tip to buy today to generate $40,000 a year adjusted for inflation. So what will happen in year five, let's say inflation averaged 10% over those five years. In that five-year bond, you would get $40,000 plus an additional $4,000. You would get $44,000 when it matures. The $40,000 principle, because it always matures at par, so the $40,000 and the government will have increased that 40 for whatever headline inflation was. In my example, I said, let's just say it averages 10% over that five-year period. So you would walk away with $44,000, which is the equivalent of 40,000 today adjusted for headline inflation. Now it gets confusing though, because remember your whole tips ladder, you got 30 bonds in it or 26, 27 bonds in it, all generating income. That income is taxable to you every year. If it's not in an IRA, irrespective, it's income that's coming out. You got to do something with that income. So that income can also be used to fund your expenses. So you might not fully need each year 40,000. This gets confusing, but follow my logic, folks. You may not need 40 each year because In year five, let's say you created a 30-year ladder, you still got 25 bonds behind year five that's generating income that will be received in year five. So all that interest plus whatever the bond is going to mature at will equal 40,000 adjusted for inflation. That's what makes this, again, incredibly difficult to create and why we need software now to do it. I specifically asked Alan Roth in the seminar I attended, you, I couldn't talk to him personally, I can only type in my question, how do you address the interest payments that are received on your 30-year bond ladders that you create for your clients? Is it used to fund cash flow or is it used and uh, to be reinvested? He specifically said he uses it to fund cash flow. So you have to adjust. That's how he does it. You can do it any way you want. So you have to adjust for those interest payments. But in theory, you will have an inflation-adjusted spending ladder created. Okay, why don't I like this? First of all, it's complicated as hell. Who's going to manage this? It also requires a strong constitution because your long-term tips, they lost a boatload of principle over the past two years. You'll be looking at your statement going, oh my God, I am losing my shirt. Most of you listening to this podcast probably won't panic because you know the tip will pay out at par. And that paper loss will be made whole by the government when that bond matures. But Chris, seriously, most people are ignorant on investing. Will you agree with that?
2: Yeah. Or under Podcast uh, listeners. Underexposed, I'm but yeah. Everyone else. Yeah, if we're talking about the wider population, absolutely, this is something they would have no ability to put together themselves, nor monitor, nor even understand what their advisor was doing if they paid someone to do it for them. Exactly. And I fear, and he admitted, Alan admitted, that could be an issue.
3: If you panic and sell, you defeated the whole purpose. You got to kind of put blinders on to the value of your bond portfolio, because it's going to be All over the place and just have faith that that bond will mature in each stated year with the equivalent of $40,000 in 2023 adjusted for headline inflation. But again, a couple of things I don't particularly like. I think the strategy makes sense academically. It's in practice. Does it work? It's complicated for most people to put together. It's going to be complicated to understand as you continue to age, but it also means you fund your retirement with a safe withdrawal rate. And I vehemently disagree with that approach to retirement. I don't think you should curtail spending on fund early in retirement. I just, it's just what I do. It's my belief. So what Chris's belief is, or he wouldn't be working with me and helping to grow this practice and our our belief in what we call the fun number approach to retirement or the secure retirement income process is the technical name we gave it. We believe that you should identify what you can spend on fun and try to spend that money during your go-go years. Not all of it, but try to spend on it. But if you try to live off of just a safe withdrawal rate, that's all you can spend each year with a tip ladder. As that tip matures, that's your money. You're spending principal. You're not living on just interest, especially with tips, because the interest rate on tips is so low. And I'll talk about that in a second. But you're limiting yourself to living off of this cash flow. And I don't believe in that approach, but many people do. And this is one way to address, as Alan Roth said on his presentation, he is a pessimist and he fears rampant inflation. And that, if it happens, his tips ladder has, and he's right, has the best chance of keeping pace with rampant inflation. But again, right now, I'm not fearful of rampant inflation. Now, over the next five years, or even over the next 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years from now, who knows? But the Fed has shown they can get inflation under control, and they did. And it hurt people who own bond funds. But if you own individual bonds, you didn't hurt if you hold to maturity. But again, if inflation, though, is benign and not rampant, you might have had a chance to generate far more asset value with more growth-orientated assets. Mm-hmm. I'll leave that to the asset managers to argue if a tip ladder is appropriate or not. My personal thought is I like the protection that tips can give for rampant future inflation. And with our approach to retirement planning, dollars that are identified to be spent later in life, your long-term minimum dignity floor reserve, or your slow-go and no-go spending, or unpositioned assets, assets that truly don't need to be put in anything. We invest those based on risk tolerance generally. Unpositioned assets, some of those dollars, especially the dollars that you were going to allocate most people for instance with with our firm, if you have unpositioned assets, in other words, we took care of your minimum dignity floor, we took care of your your aging reserve, your guaranteed inheritance, your buffer and reserve, we took care of all of that and your fun and there's still money left over. There are people in that category. Those dollars are generally invested in a portfolio that matches their risk tolerance, 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, whatever the case may be. I would be receptive to taking your bond portion of assets that are truly earmarked for later in retirement. You don't need them in a position now and put those bond assets in a series of later term tips to protect you or help protect you from rampant inflation. And the rest can be in low cost stock index fund. I would be perfectly happy with that. You could simplify it with a TIPS fund, but then with a fund, you don't have the ability to have a maturity date. Now, some money managers have recently come out with target maturity TIPS funds, their ETFs, and they will pay out on October 15th of 2024, all the way through 2033. They're only 10 years. I'm not going to name who it is. You can Google it. And there'll be more companies coming out with this. And they try to give you a, a through a ETF charging just 10 bips, exposure to tips, a quick and easy way to buy them without having to go on a figure out the QSIP and the dollar amounts and the auction. And should I buy pre-market or, or pre-auction or post-auction? And what about the bid-ask spread? They take care of all that for you for 10 basis points. But this ETF, unlike a traditional bond ETF or bond mutual fund liquidates on October 15th of whatever date between 2024 and 2033 you purchase. The problem is that's only a 10 years out. I'm not worried about the next 10 years. I would love this company to come out with the latter and do the same thing 15, 20, 25 years out. They don't have to do it every year. They do every year from now till, through 2033, but then maybe do uh, five years after that and five years after that and five years after that. That might be a little easier way. But what I'm getting at, folks, if you are truly worried about longer-term rampant inflation, maybe putting your bonds in longer-term tips and then your stocks in simple indexed, well-diversified stock ETFs or mutual funds might be a simple way to do this. That way you have some protection on your bonds from rampant inflation. I'm just sharing out loud ideas. You guys share with me in a dialogue series what you're doing to keep pace with inflation. Are you using tips ladders? How do you use the interest in your tip ladder or bond ladder? Do you do what Alan does and make it part of cash flow? Or do you reinvest the interest off to the side as kind of a self-created buffer in case something happens? In other words, you're not going to use the interest the bonds are generating for income. You're going to use the interest to create a buffer, if you will, for future unknown inflation or other expenses. Why don't you share with us what you guys are doing? Okay, Chris, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to hear in a dialogue series um this specific question, what people are doing, how concerned are they and what they're doing to maybe mitigate some inflationary risks in their approach, because there's there's nobody that I know of who's created like one magical or one way that is just, you know, so above the others that everyone does it. There's really a mixed bag of approaches here. Uh, in the long term, good old fashioned equities have been shown to be good inflation protectors, but you can't, you know, there's other risks that come along with an equity focused portfolio that you need to mitigate as well. There's, you know, there's, there's always a give and take. There's no free lunch here. So it's a trade off. I think people in retirement um, should be directly addressing the things that they fear the most. Because as you know, Jim, one of the biggest challenges in retirement is for people to feel comfortable enough and in control enough of their own situation that they give themselves permission to go spend the money that they've worked so hard to to amass over their working lives. And not everyone is going to feel the same level of comfort with each approach. So there can be that, you know, behavioral Element as well. It, it isn't just about the numbers or listening to the scientists that may have come up with what they believe to be the best uh, weapon against inflation, but rather you know a, a blend of something that makes sense academically, but also uh, you, you know you can buy into and addresses the emotional piece and is something you can manage over time. I think your your point about the complexity of some of these laddering approaches is spot on. Um, it, not that you couldn't pay someone to do it for you. And there's folks out there that'll do that, but that you got to build that cost into, uh, what, what you're doing. Um, and that any cost that you're paying for somebody doing, you know, a fairly technical, um, piece of support for you is going to have to come right out of other monies that you could be spending. So it's, uh, you know, no free lunch it's a give and take, find something that works for you. And, and, uh, get to the point where you're comfortable with the level of uh, addressing uh, that you've put forth and and then hopefully you can go out and enjoy your retirement. That's the key to all of this.
3: Yeah. And the big takeaway with this whole series, and I think we wrapped it up successfully, Mm -hmm. there is no right or sole way to address inflation. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing you need to do, don't put the horse before the cot. Do it in order. What you need to do is figure out how do you want to fund your retirement? Are you going to be a safe withdrawal rate approach? Are you going to do something similar to our approach? You're going to create a see-through portfolio and spending segmented investing is what we call it positioning, but it's what I term spending segmented investing. Are you going to start pulling out your, your expenses and? By spending categories, minimum daily floor, aging, guaranteed inheritance, buffer, you know the whole nine yards, to come up with your fun number, and then you're going to try to spend your fun number, you have to decide what approach to retirement. Uh And if you do the safe withdrawal rate, are you doing the standard safe withdrawal rate? Are you going to use a guardrail safe withdrawal rate? And Google that. Are you going to use a ceiling and floor safe withdrawal rate? Google that. How are you going to fund your safe withdrawal rate? How are you going to design it, rather? I do feel. If you do the safe withdrawal rate, a bond ladder is designed for that. It's not truly designed for our approach. Although we do use individual bonds, and I most likely will be using these new ETFs, but we like the simplicity of individual bonds, and we sometimes use them in our bridge, if you will, what we call the delay period. The industry calls it the bridge or social security bridge. The spending you're going to do from social security, excuse me, from retirement until social security turns on, the industry calls that the bridge. You spend from your assets during that time period while you're delaying your social security. Individual bonds or these individual ETFs, That are tied to tips are to me a wonderful way of doing it because you know the dollar amounts each year that you're calculating that you're going to need, and you might inflate those a little. Gee, I think I only need thirty thousand, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do thirty five just to be a little bit on the safe side. Whatever you may be, Um, those ETFs might be a great way for that bridge, especially if your bridge is ten years or less. You could put that money aside. Have it in an ETF, not deal with individual bonds, bid-ask spread, q numbers, all of that. You can just use one of those target maturity ETFs that will pay out everything with the tips adjustment on October 15th of every year. That might be a great way of funding this bridge period. There's any number of ways you can do it but you have to first begin with the basics. And that's how you're gonna fund your retirement. Once you know how you're gonna fund your retirement, then you can look at how am I gonna address inflation? But don't start with trying to address inflation first, start with how you're gonna fund retirement, safe withdrawal rate, fund number, or some other approach. And that's what a dialogue was a few months ago people sharing what their approach was. And I hope to continue dialogue in December and let's do let's try to dedicate this dialogue session to inflation. So again, please put dialogue and inflation in the subject line and share with us what you do to keep pace with inflation. Are you overly concerned or not? I truly am not overly concerned on rampant inflation at least in the foreseeable future, but I do feel it could be an issue 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yes, it doesn't mean it's going to. Japan has been in a deflationary environment since the late 90s. That's a long period. It doesn't mean we're going to have rampant inflation. And if you are solely based on tips and you have a very benign or Japanese-like period for the past almost 30 years of not meaningful inflation at all, you're not going to get much of a return on tips at all. So I'm hesitant to put it all in tips, but I like them. So I'm torn. And that's what I want our discussion to be. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think everyone, Chris, is different, and you're going to do what is best for you. But I'm also going to encourage you. Keep it simple. I know you guys have the engineer mind. I know you have the ability right now to be complex. Don't don't put the older you in that position of trying to handle something that you just don't feel like dealing with anymore, or sadly, you don't fully understand. But Chris, as we wrap this up, what's one of the things from Texas Tech that you always talk about and worry? If you create something complex, you might think you're doing it mm-hmm. well, but what can often happen, Chris?
2: Well, oftentimes your ability to compute and handle things um, degrades, but your self. I guess, uh, confidence confidence in your abilities doesn't go down and that's the real challenge and I think creates a dangerous environment. So just keep, uh, keep an eye on the older you, (laughs) the older you will appreciate it if you leave for them something that is easy to follow, straightforward, makes sense, leave written documentation for, (laughs) for the older you, all of that stuff. Uh, and, um, I think you'll just n- not make it impossible, but it'll really reduce the chances that either silly mistakes are made down the road or someone takes advantage of them and, 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 uh, they kind of lose control of their own financial situation. So keep that in mind as well.
3: Yeah. And that was the Texas Tech study, folks, yep. that found is the stubborn old man syndrome. You don't realize. You're not understanding it anymore. Your confidence remains high. But as a Harvard study found, after age 53, the human brain, the part of our brain that understands financial concepts has started to degrade. I'm not naive, folks. I'm 60. Chris is a couple of years younger than me. I think four or five years younger than me. But neither one of us are naive. We know. Another decade from now, our junior planners are going to be sharper than us. I fully expect. If they're not, I'm going to smack them upside the head and tell them what the hell they're doing. Because in another 10 years, our junior planners are still going to be younger than we are now. And I know my ability to understand financial concepts will degrade. Am I going to be a Charlie Munger or a Jesus? Warren Buffett, God, how do I always forget him, the more common one? It's like the third tenor. I only remember the third tenor and I don't remember the other two. I can always get Munger, but I can't get Buffett. I don't know if we're gonna be as smart as they are and you don't know if you're gonna be as smart as they are. Keep your retirement simple. There's nothing wrong with simplicity. Most of you will have a little extra money Go out and have your fun, complex account and have fun with it.
2: But minimum dignity floor needs to be simple. Okay, I'm done. Perfect. Okay. Well, once again, we will not have a new Q&A show this week, uh, which would normally be coming up in a few days. But we'll be back with you next week with two new shows. Hope everyone has a happy Thanksgiving. Um, Don't overindulge. You'll... Thank yourself for not doing so. I know it'll be hard for some of us. I know it will be for me. But uh, uh, just hope everyone has a healthy and happy Thanksgiving. And we'll be back with you next week with two brand new shows.
1: You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Saulnier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit JimHelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's Jim, H E L P S, Or call 970 530 0556.
0: is offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.